Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Welcome, everyone, to episode 211 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Mark McEvely and I, Matt Jessup, bring you everything you need to know uh, from the past week in the world of the financial markets and financial planning. Uh, Mark is busy this week with work-related responsibilities, so today I'm honored to have Aaron Kramer, Wealth Advisor with our firm Jessup Wealth Management, on the podcast with me today. Welcome, Aaron. Thank you. Happy to be back on the podcast. It's been a little while, but I'm, I'm happy to fill in as always. We really appreciate it. You always do a fabulous job. So uh, before we begin, Aaron, I have a couple of non-financial related items I want to discuss with you. Right. Uh, one, I know you're going to be very well versed on. The other, we'll <laughs> see. So I want to start off. I want to talk about Major League Soccer, MLS and Messi now in Miami. So what do you think of this? And what do you think of this amazing game winning goal in his first game at the 94 minute mark? It, it doesn't surprise me that he had the game-winning goal. Uh, I'm not a huge soccer person, but my understanding is David Beckham pushed pretty hard to get him there. Um, yeah. So I think it's a great thing for, for the MLS. And um, I know just being from Cincinnati, there's a new MLS team there. So it, I can see the sport growing locally here, which is cool. So I think that's just something that will help, help benefit it. I'll give you another tidbit. Um, he, he only has one, uh, uh, non-negotiable. He will not play on artificial turf. And I believe there is five or six teams, uh, and MLS that play an artificial turf. And, um, the MLS is going to be putting grass on those, uh, in the near future. <laughs> that is pretty, uh, pretty amazing. He's got so some, second, he's got some pull. <laughs> he does have some pull. So secondly, I saw an amazing stat of your beloved Bengals, and it has to do with Joe Burrow. Oh, yeah. So I Love saw it. this this morning. Are you ready? <laughs> I'm ready. Since 2021, Joe Burrow has been the most sacked quarterback with 92 sacks, yet has 69 passing touchdowns, 9,086 passing yards, the highest completion rate in NFL history, five playoff wins, went to a Super Bowl. Your thoughts on his future? Um. Amazing. I hope we can get a line that can protect him because at that clip of that many sacks, it's um, going to be tough to be healthy for a long time. Right. So exactly. Um, but if if the Bengals can get a solid O line and protect him, I think he's uh, pretty limitless on what he can do. Bodes well for your future. It does. It, it does bode well. <laughs> Well, we've had a lot of news lately, so what we'll do is we'll we'll transition gears. I'll start with some pricing. We'll talk about the Fed meeting yesterday, Aaron, and we'll dig into our normal content. So I'm going to start with pricing, sir. Um, all Perfect. this data is going to be from Y charts and is as of this morning, which is July 27th, uh, before market open. S&P 500 index for the month up 2.6%, year-to-date up 189 the Dow Jones Industrial Average, Aaron, up 3.2% for the year, year-to-date, 7.2%. NASDAQ Composite, 2.5% month-to-date, 35% year-to-date, I'm sorry, 2.5% was month-to-date. Mm -hmm. iShares, Russell 2000, 4.9% month-to-date, small caps doing well. Year-to-date, 127 
Vanguard, uh, FTSE All World X United States ETF, 3.2% uh, positive for the month, 11.9% for the year. Three month treasury rate, 5.51, two year, 4.82, and the 10 year, 3.86. So let's go to kind of the, um, the market talk of the week. The Fed met yesterday. They meet every six weeks, listeners and viewers. They did uh, anticipate the market was anticipating a quarter of a point hike, and that's exactly what they did. So the target rate now, Aaron, is five and a quarter to five and a half percent. Just this morning, the European Central Bank followed suit with its own 25 basis point hike. Okay, now um, the big message from the Fed, as expected, was going forward, their raises are going to be purely data dependent. Right, and right. Um, based upon Wall Street futures, now when I say Wall Street in the Chicago Mercantile Exchange up in Chicago, uh, it thinks the Fed's done. But we will see kind of how this this plays out over the right. coming weeks and months. And we'll be talking about a lot on the podcast. Aaron, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I think the biggest things is just what what does inflation come in at and how are the job numbers, I think, are the two biggest things that the Fed's looking at right now. And obviously, inflation has come in significantly. What is it hovering around 3% year over year right now? So, um, Yeah, a little bit over 3. A little bit over 3. But um, I think the concern and why the Fed's remaining data dependent is that if job numbers are still so strong, still going to be too much money flowing through the system, people the chance for long-term inflation. So, um, yeah, I think we'll see. I think um, one more rate hike's not unlikely um, by the end of the year. So I guess we'll, we will also be data dependent, right? <laughs> yeah. And see what comes to mind for me, Aaron, is I had this conversation with Mark about, I don't know, probably five, six weeks ago in the podcast. And it had to do with this ingrained thought process in the market that if rates are above X amount in someone's mind, let's say Fed funds rate above three or four, well, stocks can't do good. Risk assets can't do good. It's not true. It's not true at all. You know, we can go back to the late 90s and as an example, most recent time period where this occurred, Mm -hmm. where we had inherently higher interest rates, the economy just did just fine. Right. So. I don't want people to assimilate just because the last decade we've been in a low interest rate environment and they equivalent low interest rates have to mean the only way that risk assets can do good. And that's not necessarily the case. Right. It's it's just providing now there's more alternatives with rates being a little bit higher. Right. You can get that's a right. decent money market yield, things like that. So it's not that it can't do well. It's just there's more alternatives to, to get you, yield. Now, see, Aaron. <laughs> I love it. You provide me the perfect segue into my first piece. (laughs) Thank you. So we will move to tweets, articles, and research from this week. My first I would like to discuss with you, Aaron, is a thought-provoking tweet uh, by J.C. Peretz. Uh, Am I allowed to call it a tweet anymore? Do I I call it an X? X. It's an X now. I don't know. (laughs) Okay. So a thought-provoking X tweet by J.C. Peretz in regards to cash on the sidelines. Okay. So Jenna's going to put up this um, this Twitter post, this chart uh, for our YouTube viewers. This will be in our show notes for our traditional podcast listeners. You go to any of our social media sites on on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, etc. You'll see our show notes. What J.C. Peretz did here is on July 21st, he retweeted a, um, a post by the Unusual Whales. 
and it says high net worth investors with more than 1 million have their highest allocation to cash, according to CNBC. And it shows this data going back to 2002 when the levels were high. Mm-hmm. And you're clearly going to see that the cash levels that high net worth investors have right now is high. And this is what JC Perret says, quote, do you think they'll regret this decision or will there be or will they be happy they were in so much cash during one of the strongest bull markets in history? Aaron, I'll let you go first on this one. Interesting. Man. It's a it's a bold take by him, but um, we, we are back in a bull market, right? So though my concern would be is when did they raise this cash? When did they reduce equity exposure or bond exposure to to have these cash levels? And I think that would kind of decide if they're happy with their decision or not, right? Because yeah. if they got out last October, they're probably uh probably hurting Picking a little itself. bit still. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but if they got lucky and timed the the top, maybe they're feeling pretty good right now. But um, my opinion, I think these cash levels are too high long term. I I'd like to see them come down, and I think they will. Um, and what will that do? I think that'll push the the stock market even higher as this cash works its way back into the market. That's my feeling. Yeah, it was interesting. Last week I was listening to another podcast. <clears throat> it's called the All In Podcast. Has a bunch of um, um silicon valley billionaires on mm, it. and they were pretty much sending the same message that a lot of um, their friends are still real conservative a lot of dry powder on the sidelines was kind of the message that i was receiving and it's just interesting because i still think uh and i said this on the podcast several weeks ago i'll say it again we're still in the disbelief phase um, mm-hmm. of where the market's at doesn't mean that every month and every quarter is going to be up in my opinion. So we got to know that a pullback at some point is likely. But I think that with the amount of cash that's on these sidelines right now, you're going to see a lot of people buy that dip. Uh, my opinion. Now, I think the other thing we got to be aware of is as rates come down, let's say that's the case in 2024. And as you mm-hmm. alluded to, Aaron, if there's less competition for you know fixed income oriented instruments, that could also provide more uh, potential upside for stocks. So I have a piece here in a second talking about kind of where we're at in the economic cycle. Yeah. And remember, you always say this, and I'm going to steal the quote from you. <laughs> you know, the stock market's not the economy, and the economy's not the stock market. Right. And you're going to hear that here in a little bit when I talk about kind of where we're at with the economy. Perfect. All right. I'm move on to my next piece. Number two, and this plays right into it. Could we already be in a recession, Aaron? Okay. So this is a piece from Liz Ann Saunders. She's the chief investment strategist at Charles Schwab. She had a X tweet on July 21st uh, that shows the conference board's leading economic index, the LEI. And before I continue, I want to explain what this is. Okay, the leading. um, First of all, the conference board publishes leading um, you know, coincident and lagging indexes designed to signal peaks and troughs in the business cycle for the major economies around the world. So the leading economic index uh, provides an early indication of significant turning points in the business cycle where the economy is headed in the near term. Now, that's word for word from the mm-hmm. conference board website, Aaron. OK, so let's go back to Liz's post. 
this post shows kind of this uh, this index going back to the early 60s. So a long data set. Yeah. And this is exactly what she said, Aaron, quote, the decline for the conference board leading economic index in June brought the max drawdown to negative nine point nine percent. Going back to 1960, the index has never seen this magnitude of a decline without already being in mm. a recession. Okay? Interesting. So I want to throw this out there. You know, last year, the economy was doing good, but people were fearing what was going to happen in 23 with the way the Fed was handling interest rates. Right. So the economy was fine. Stock market, bond market, bad. Okay. Now let's fast forward to where we're at right now. Guess what's starting to happen? The stock market is starting to do better. Mm -hmm. Bonds are starting to do better. Now you're having some real-time data saying, hey, there's a chance we could be in a recession. Right. And listeners and viewers, you got to remember, we don't know we're in a recession until after it's right. happened. It's because the data comes out so late. And so laggy. Yeah, it's laggy. And um, from from my perspective, the the stock market tends to lead the economy anyway. So we very well could be in a recession, but the market's already pushing higher because it's already predicted the chance that that was going to happen or has already happened. That's why, like you said, last year the market sold off so much is the chance of a recession for this year, but we don't actually know that we're in it yet, right? Exactly. And so, you know, the old school version, which I prescribe to, is two uh, consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. That's a recession. Mm -hmm. Now, the conference board has further items that go in to confirm it. And um, I don't think we're going to reach the technical definition. We'll see if I I'm right. Yeah. Not feeling that way to me. I've got an interesting one of my, my last piece that I'll share with you um, towards the end of the podcast is going to play right into this. So we're we're on the same page today. I like it. <laughs> OK, OK. I didn't I didn't look at your notes, so I don't know. So this will be fun. So uh, I have two more items. Um, the last one's going to be very quick. So the next one has to do with food prices. Aaron, we haven't talked about food prices uh, quite some time on the podcast. And there was a post from Javier Blas. He's an energy and commodities columnist at Bloomberg. And he had a tweet. And let me get the date of the tweet before I go on. July 21st. And this was, you know, one thing we just haven't discussed, uh, fertilizer prices. So one thing we got to realize is that fertilizer prices skyrocketed during the initial Russian invasion into Ukraine. And you want to guess what's happened since? Prices have really, really come in. So let's look at this chart. Jenna's going to put this up for our YouTube viewers. This is going to be in our show notes. I would highly recommend this get uh, some eyes on it. Look at this parabolic move in fertilizing prices that shot up. The yeah. index was at about 400 pre-invasion, got up to almost 1,400, and now you're back to about 500. Yeah, so and it more so than tripled. Tripled. And this is what Javier said. Global fertilizer prices have collapsed over the last few months, easing pressure on farmers. Now, I'm hoping this starts to translate when we go to the grocery store, right? Right. So for uh, the YouTube viewers that can see me dressed right now, I got a Hawaiian <laughs> shirt on because I'm currently on a small vacation with my family. And, you know, um, 
I'm typically the one uh, who gets up early and I go to the grocery store, get the goodies, come back. And when the kids wake up, magically breakfast is made. I wonder how that happens, Aaron. <laughs> and, you know, my wife does a lot of grocery shopping and just kind of see these prices firsthand. They're still relatively elevated, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I'll be curious to see. It takes time for this stuff to take effect. But fertilizer prices have really, really come in. Something to take note. Any comments on your end? No, I mean, that's that's a direct input cost for farmers, which should eventually translate to lower food prices at some point. So that's right. Um, I think it's again, it's fear that that drives these prices up. And then as things normalize, it comes back down. So we'll, we'll see. It's yep. interesting how how much it went up because we're back to I mean, we're at 2013, 2014, 2015 levels and fertilizer prices. So yep. um, it's pretty interesting. It should should have a pretty, pretty massive impact on on prices, I would imagine. I think it should over the next six to nine months. If it stays this way, yeah. I would agree with that. Absolutely. So the last thing's going to be pretty quick. Just an interesting stat about housing that surprised me, I think. So this is from Allie Wolf. She's chief market strategist at Zonda. Um, and then here's the stat. She posted this on July 21st. It is new homes are getting smaller. The national average unit size. And this has to do, I believe, uh, with square foot is down to about 2,400 square foot. And um, the highest it was in 2018 was 2,700. And it's interesting. Aaron, do you feel this is more a factor of affordability or demographic desires for first-time home buyers or a combination of the both? What's your thoughts on this? I think it's I think it's a combination of the both of both. Um, building prices were expensive. 2020 to 2022 right mm -hmm. so i yep. think that you can kind of see that that move down a little bit faster in that period so that could be a factor but it's really dropped off even uh even more uh since 23 with i think rates being higher rates going yep. up has impacted it as well so yep. people can't afford to build as big of a house because rates are uh, impacting their affordability yeah um i also think it's i think it's kind of cultural is smaller families nowadays we people aren't having six seven eight kids anymore so they don't need the space i think the mega home trend has kind of fizzled off post 08 really what they um, called the mcmansion back the, the mcmansion 90s. yes <laughs> so right? i think it's just a com i think it's a combination of of three things that it's not affordable demographics are changing and um really it's uh interest rates impacting it as well. I'm also seeing tons and tons of articles on these prefab houses. And, you know, um, it got a lot of press. I guess Home Depot was posting a prefab house. That doesn't include like the slab and you'd have to run it for water and electric. But just the the structure itself was like roughly fifty thousand dollars. Right? Oh, wow. OK. And I just think that I think you could see um, a whole new. Uh, I know, for example, like Warren Buffett owns a prefabbed um home company it's like i think you could really start to see you know prefab homes if they're smaller be a lot more cost effective than building on site yeah absolutely absolutely it's interesting that's a very yeah, interesting that was an interesting stat so i'll turn it over to you what do you got this week for our listeners and viewers all right my first item is a tweet uh by bespoke um investment group um again always always look at they their stuff great content, always great stuff it's um the tweet was on 726 and it says um 
of the 213 stocks that have reported earnings so far this season, 70% have beaten consensus bottom line EPS estimates, while just 59% have beaten sales estimates. What does this tell you? So my opinion, I'll, I'll let you go first and let me get your thoughts and I'll, then I'll chime in. Uh, first of all, I think companies have been better at controlling cost. I think that, mm. you know, that is highlighted by the tech industry. You know, I've seen so many people assimilate in different research reports, Aaron. You know, you cut so many expenses, you cut some staff like they did, especially at the end of 22, beginning of 23. And then what they do is they apply the multiple that stock is trading at. So right. all of a sudden, you know, you have, a, you have a tech stock trading at a 25 times earnings multiple. You cut $8 billion of annual cost. You can times that by 25 is what the research reports are trying to do. Right. And so... That's my first response. What's your thoughts? My my response is price control. So I think margins are higher because they've cut costs, right? Um, but um, I like to see that 70% have beaten. That's very encouraging for me. Um, I think that's a very, very solid number. And then the fact that a little bit less, 59% have beaten sales estimates is probably that sales are relatively stable, um, but aren't growing exponentially anymore that was kind of my feelings i think that's a good viewpoint and, and i think also you know what kind of comes to mind is earnings overall have been very resilient they we have talked about that a lot on the podcast and you know going back to it i think a lot of people were watching stock prices in 2022 and assimilating well if the stock price is trading like this Eventually, you know, someone must know something and their earnings are going to have right, to come in right. and follow that. And we narrative. haven't seen that. We haven't seen that. I haven't seen it. Nope. So it's nice to see the, this uh, this nice earnings beat. We got a lot of big boys in the S&P 500 reporting over the next seven, eight business days. Yep. So we're in the um, heart of we're earnings season right now. Yep. Yeah, we're in the thick of it. Absolutely. OK. Uh, any other thoughts or are you right if I move on to my next one? I'm good if you move on. Perfect. Um, second item I have is an article uh, and a chart from Vetify. Uh, they're, they're a research company. Um, and this article was posted on July 25th, so just a couple days ago. Um, and it's regarding consumer confidence improving to a two-year high. So I thought that was pretty interesting. I'm just going to read a, a blurb from this article really fast. Yeah. Um, consumer confidence rose in July of 23 to its highest level since 2021 uh, reflecting pops in both current conditions and expectations uh, said Dana Peterson who's the chief uh, economist at the conference board the conference board is who is publishing these uh, consumer um, data indexes points. data yeah. points exactly so headline confidence appears to have broken out of the sideways trend that prevailed for much of last year Greater confidence was evident across all age groups and among both consumers earning less than $50,000 and those making more than $100,000. That's a big so, sentence right there. That's a that big is. statement. That's why I especially wanted to read greater that. greater confidence amongst all groups, especially less than 50000 It's interesting. So hmm. um, I think it's a kind of a, from your first point, kind of counter indicative of a of recession if you look at this chart from my perspective when this is improving recession doesn't happen for a while so i guess i kind of have two things that play into to hmm. um, that's an excellent i mean it makes sense when i look at the chart i mean encourage our our traditional podcast listeners to go to our show notes and check this out 
yeah, so it does highlight the the recessions in a uh, gray period um, throughout time. And this chart goes back all the way to 1977. So there's quite a bit of data uh, in this. So I thought that was uh, reassuring. And I think um, it's good to see that the average American feels that everything is improving pretty significantly. So, yeah, I think it's um, one reminder for me, uh, for our listeners and viewers that, you know, the market is forward looking. You know, when I say the mm -hmm. market, specifically the stock market in this comment, very forward looking. And, you know, I think it is indicative that the market with stocks doing better, I think it is the market telling you that the market right now today is expecting things to be better a year from now. And that makes sense going into a presidential election year, right? It does. It does. All right. I have one last thing. And then you're going to take the financial planning topic. I am, sir. Week. So um, last item I have is a blog post by uh, Ben Carlson on the 25th as well. Um, and it is titled a textbook non-recession, non-recessionary bear market. So um, we'll have a link to this blog in the show notes as well. And um, again, I always love Ben Carlson's um, articles. He's a... Um, He's a CFA and has very, very good points and really good data that he gets from Y charts. So uh, I'm not going to read the whole blog post because it's a bit lengthy, but I just wanted to kind of paraphrase uh, what he's talking about. And essentially, there's two main types of bear markets. So one is a recessionary bear market. So market downturns that occur in and around a recession. And then mm -hmm. there's the second, which is non-recessionary bear markets where market downturns that occur for some other reason beyond a recessionary period. So um, he has a chart here that lists historical recessionary bear markets. And um, some examples are the Great Depression, 1937, in the 70s, in the 90s, uh, the Great Financial Crisis, and in 2020. So um, I just wanted to highlight the average percent decline um, for these periods is about 39.4%. And the number of down consecutive down days or down days during these periods in the market is 390 days is the is average. The so that's the length, right? Um, so not all drawdowns occur um, we're the end of the world here, but uh, they did have some of the worst crashes at this point. So the non-recessionary bear markets um, on average, so these will be times like 2022, excuse me, 2022, 2011, um, the 60s, the 40s, There's you'll see the chart here, but on average, the percent decline is, is significantly lower than um, the recessionary period. So the average percent decline was 25.9%. And the number of days that it lasted is 210. Mm. So when we look at 2022, the market loss was 25.4% lasting 282 days. So not saying that this is a guarantee that it's not going to be a recession, but it is pretty spot on with the, the long-term historical trends that... Very interesting. Very interesting. In my opinion, I think... Um, I, I tend to agree with you that I don't think a recession, I'm I'm not seeing it personally. I don't see it. Um, maybe no, I'm crazy. I mean, I'll, maybe I'm I'll wrong. Out there. I mean, yesterday, I, I shared this with you uh, and Jenna uh, before we started recording uh, this podcast today. Yesterday, I was at Universal. Place was absolutely jam-packed, okay? 
Um, it felt like I needed to take a second mortgage out uh, to do the park yesterday. <laughs> and um, I walked 24,000 steps and people were spending money like fiends. And so yeah. I'm just I'm not getting I'm not getting the feeling. Um, you know, I booked uh, this uh, budget airline uh, for the first time because uh, they started flying in Dayton called Avello. And uh, we planned this trip kind of last minute. And so about three weeks, two weeks before it left, we booked and half the uh, plane was open. We go to the night to, to leave and, and Aaron, every seat was full. What, what does that tell you? Spending's there. You know, it's like the the anecdotal data that I'm seeing, you know, I'm not saying my channel checks are spot on, but just <laughs> when I see these things, it just tells me, OK, money is flowing right now. Money is flowing. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I thought you know, that was other, pretty. Yeah. Good. The other comment I have about this, it just in regards to um, the way the market's been over the past year. There's still a lot of disbelief in the market. There's a lot of disbelief that we or I'm, since I should say there's a belief that we are in something called a bear market bounce, which is, you know, we're having a temporary respite from a larger decline uh, that could occur. Is that possible? Absolutely. But again, when I'm looking at the data that I'm seeing, I just don't think that that's the most likely outcome. That's the mm -hmm. best way I can say it to be transparent. Um, you know, it's possible, but yeah, there's always as each chance, day goes right? on, and I've highlighted the length similar to you. It's just not doesn't doesn't fall into context of history. Right. Absolutely. Good way All of saying right. it. Perfect. Love it. All right. So financial planning topic of the week. What I picked this week is um, an article by Kelly Taylor. She's a senior tax editor at Kiplinger.com. And she published this on July 18th. And it's in regards to IRS delaying RMD rules again. Okay. Hmm. So um, let me kind of um, communicate what's going on here. Okay. Uh, I'm going to quote the article, Aaron. Perfect. Quote, late last week, the IRS announced a delay of final rules governing governing inherited IRA RMDs to 2024. The agency also extended the 60-day rollover of certain plan distributions to September 30th of 2023. What does this latest rule delay mean, Kelly said? Some beneficiaries of inherited IRAs have more time to adopt I'm um, sorry, to adapt to distribution requirements. The IRS will waive penalties for RMDs missed in 2023 from IRAs inherited in 2022, where the deceased owner was already subject to RMDs. Um, taken with the previous relief, penalties were waived for missed RMDs for specific IRAs inherited in 2020, 2021, and 2022. Lastly, the IRS 60-day relief offers more time to roll over distributions from earlier this year that were mischaracterized as RMDs. And it says, quotes, if you were born in 1951 and received or will receive a distribution this year before July 31st, you have an extension to roll these distributions over. So I wanna throw this out there that if you inherited an IRA uh, over the past couple of years, definitely seek out um, your uh, financial advisor or Call your custodian, do some research, make sure you're on top of these RMDs, understand the rules. Um, if you need some guidance on this, you can contact our office. You can talk to uh, Taylor Ledbetter, um, and she's our, our para planner. Um, I mean, Aaron Kramer, you're extremely qualified, uh, Mr. CFP, uh, on <laughs> these types of topics. But I wanted to just make it aware that 
they are extending some relief on this topic. Uh, I just want to make sure our listeners and viewers, uh, Aaron, were aware of this, sir. Yeah, yeah, I think I'm glad you brought that up because these I think they're doing this because there's still so much confusion on what the true rules are going to be for inherited IRAs. Yep. As we stand right now, we've got that 10 year window to, yep. to withdraw. I'm not sure if there's going to be required minimum distributions within that 10 year period. We just haven't had the legislation pass yet or the guidance from the IRS yet. So we're everyone in the industry is just kind of sitting and waiting right now to, to figure it out. So, um, that's good. I'm glad you brought that up. It's good for people yeah. to know. Yeah, that's a good way to say it too, by the way. So before we sign off, Aaron, I'll give you first uh, first crack at it. Anything you, any thoughts, financial or non-financial, you want to leave our listeners and viewers <laughs> with? No, uh, again, financial, it, it's not the time to make rash decisions. If you're in the market, my opinion is I would stick with it. Um, I think better times are ahead is my only piece of advice. That's my opinion. No guarantees, right? <laughs> no, that's correct. I was add to it. I, I'm gonna give. I'm, I'm gonna play my final thought right into yours perfectly. You know, I do think at some point in the second half of this year we'll have a pullback. Is that going to be a five percent pullback from the high water mark? Is going to be ten percent? I don't know. However, I'm of this mindset that over the next twelve to eighteen months, I think we're in relatively friendly waters. My personal mm -hmm. opinion. And again, that doesn't mean every month or every quarter is going to be up. And um, I just think, generally speaking, a lot of cash on the sidelines. You're going into a presidential election year next year. It's uh, very common that the incumbents tend to try to do what they can to perk up the economy so they can get up there in front of their constituents and say, I've done this. Yep. Both sides of the aisle do it. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think that 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 bodes well. I think that you could statistically, if the Fed is able to continue to control inflation like they have been successful in the first, you know, seven and a half months of this year, then I think that you could see Fed funds rate potentially come down in 2024. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, invest for a longer term time horizon. I said it before. I'll say it again. This is not a market to try to time. It's time in the market. Exactly. Invest for your risk tolerance, goals, and objectives. Um, but I think we'll leave it there. We're in the middle of earnings season. Expect more volatility in individual securities. And um, I think we'll leave it there. So perfect. Thank you, listeners and viewers, for listening to episode 211 of the Independent Advisors podcast. Uh, myself, Aaron, and Jenna, we hope all of you have a wonderful rest of your week, and we will see you next week. Take care, everyone. Thank you, Matt. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. 
All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved.